We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio today by New Bloom's Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone by Alexander Gorlack, an affiliate professor at Harvard College, who is currently a visiting scholar at the National Taiwan University's College of Social Sciences. And tonight we discuss James Sung once again representing Taiwan at the APEC Leaders Summit, a busy week for Premier William Lai, who's been promoting moves to tackle shortages of land, power and water, the current status of same-sex marriage bills, calls for a constitutional interpretation on laws governing desecration of the ROC flag and some civic savvy teenagers but we'll begin with all eyes in taiwan being on beijing earlier this week as u.s president donald trump and china's xi jinping met in the chinese capital and i spoke with former american institute in taiwan director william stanton about the meeting and its possible ramifications for taiwan u.s china ties good evening bill Good evening. Right, so Donald Trump jetted off to Asia and, of course, China this week. And all eyes were on Beijing as he held talks with Xi Jinping in the Chinese capital. And where do you think this leaves Taiwan? Well, my hope is that it uh, leaves things at the status quo, uh, that the Taiwan issue, even if uh, it's mentioned that uh, Trump has been well advised enough by his staff not to go there, and that he doesn't say much at all. Taiwan is not going to be, from the U.S. perspective, the big issue. The big issues are going to be, one, as everybody's been pointing out, North Korea, and then, second of all, trade. But do you think you mentioned the big trade delegations from the U.S. accompanying Donald Trump? Right. Do you think this could be good for Taiwan, as it'll take the focus away from the Taiwan issue and onto trade? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Trump doesn't understand, clearly doesn't understand the Taiwan issue well enough. My hope is I, I would have felt a little bit more comfortable if some people like Peter Navarro, this has been pointed out, uh, have been along on the visit. But I don't know if you saw a very interesting column by the former Washington Post correspondent, John Pomfret. And uh, it was a letter to uh, Xi Jinping about what he should expect. And the emphasis in the letter is that increasingly everybody in Washington and everyone even in American business no longer has a uh, rosy glass view of China that there's just been too much disappointment, the relationship has been too out of whack, and, um, you know, it's time to uh, stop putting such an emphasis on making the Chinese happy. It's about time they did something to make the U.S. happy. So I think think it's hard to see that any of advisors are going to be pushing Trump in the wrong direction on Taiwan. Of course, I can always be wrong, and we can't. We can't disallow the fact that Trump might just say something that it's untoward and the Chinese will take it to the bank. But I'm sure that uh, Xi Jinping will will probably raise, uh, perforce will raise Taiwan. Right. I've obviously been concerns about Donald Trump trying to use Taiwan as a pawn in Washington's dealings with Beijing. I think it's speculation. Um, for one thing, uh, it would never fly in Washington as soon as, for example, interestingly, even though um, we've had trade difficulties with Taiwan, um, the Congress, the U.S. Congress on a bicarp- 
bipartisan basis, is very supportive of Taiwan, both as a democracy, as a friend of the U.S. Views there are very positive. It's not, it's very much more mixed in the administration itself. But I think there would be huge blowback from the Congress, um, and certainly among the Republicans even, or Trump's support. But I, I just don't think... Um, that he's going to play that card, or if he does, that it's going to go anywhere. Um, it would give a scare for sure here. What about Trump actually moving in the direction of providing Taiwan with more defensive weapons systems, allowing ROC naval vessels to dock in U.S. ports, and stepping up the amount of like official visits for Taiwan officials to the United States? Obviously, the um, the Taiwan Security Act obviously right. seeks to enhance military cooperation between the two sides. I mean, do you think this this act is going to get Trump's backing, or do you think he won't pay much attention to it and he'll let lawmakers deal with it? Well, you know, he's always interested in selling arms, as we saw in Japan. Um, He thinks of himself in many ways as the the merchant-in-chief for the United States. Um, so I'm, I'm sure he would like it and sees it as a way of addressing the deficit as he does in Japan. You know, the Congress is clearly supportive of all those things. And I used to argue for those kinds of things when I was at AIT. Now, I don't imagine, though, I can't see Trump getting fully behind them. I mean, he's never been to Taiwan. He doesn't understand, I don't think, the Taiwan issue. Um, I don't think he's going to get involved in that. But it may be, if there's enough support on the Hill, maybe he'll go along with it. I think the key test is some of the people around him who are the most pro-Chinese will tell him, oh, you can't shake up the relationship. Everyone who's been advising him from Henry Kissinger to Steve Mnuchin to all the Goldman Sachs crowd, all these guys would say, oh, God, you'll destroy the relationship. You know, the sky will fall. So he might back off then. I just don't know. The Chinese will certainly put up a fuss if any of those things come to pass. Ryan, what about the South China Sea? Do you think Trump pays any attention to the South China Sea? You know, curiously, it's an issue he hasn't raised, although Tillerson was very bellicose about it during his confirmation hearing. Mattis has been very strong on the issue as well. And actually, um, maybe because he's turned it over to the military, um, they've increased the number of regular what they call uh, freedom of navigation operations. And so these FNOPs, are continuing. I think in the last year of the Obama administration, there was only uh, four of these, and not that many before, and there have been five already under Trump. And the indications coming out of the Pentagon, these are going to continue. Now, I think a few things have happened. One is that um, the fact that the Philippines have backed off and Duarte has calmed down. And with that, the Chinese seem to have calmed down a little bit. So that seems to take in some of the steam out of things. It's also possible that the Chinese have so tidily, totally militarized everything they want, it's not an issue. But if the, uh, the operations, the freedom of navigation operations continue, the potential for conflict is always there. Um, there's one other factor to consider, which is with the Chinese building a, uh, you know, their one belt, one road plan, building the string of pearls around this, uh, the Indian Ocean, uh, building a road down through uh 
through Burma, one through Pakistan, that they're planning so that uh, eventually the Malacca Strait and the South China Sea won't be the only and main source for all the oil they get from the Middle East, that it'll come both overland and by sea through other routes. And so to some extent, maybe the Chinese feel they've got as much as they need right now from the South China Sea, but that may be overly optimistic. So Brian, you listen to Bill there? I think it's about right, although I'm maybe not as confident in uh, you know the American legislature always backing Taiwan. Uh, it's always just a big question, you know, when it comes to Donald Trump. He's an, he's an unpredictable factor. I mean, you know, we've seen a lot of uh, different images circulating on the internet of that meeting. And while there have been trade deals signed with China, um, you know, it's kind of unclear what that means. Was that planned beforehand? Um, is, I mean, is that anything new? Or it was, you know, these trade deals, you know, sort of repackaged to make it seem like some breakthrough had happened? I mean, you know, the Taiwan question is always just an issue. And, you know, this time around, Taiwan just did not hope to be mentioned at all. I mean, you know, given Trump's unpredictability, it's usually feared now that if Trump does mention Taiwan, things will take a worse uh, turn for Taiwan. Yeah, well, I I have a greater sympathy for uh, the remarks in the statement that Donald Trump may not even comprehend and fully uh, embrace the Taiwan issue. And so for that reason, just blinds it out in his mind and would not even mention it. I, I think just the overall uh, view on that trip uh, is, as Brian said, it's so full of mixed uh, signals and uh, unpredictability so that you, in the end, uh, it's hard to detect what Donald Trump really thinks uh, about the region. I mean, the, the Japanese, he recommended like, to buy American weapons in, in South Korea. On the other hand, he was very harsh on North Korea. And so, yeah, I, I would totally agree with the two. Right. Obviously, Brian um, William Stanton said mm-hmm. something along the lines of the fact that he, he dismissed speculation that the Trump administration could use Taiwan as a sort of a bargaining chip with China. Um, well, I think, you know, William Stanton is sort of obligated to say that. But, I mean, with Trump, anything is on the table. I mean, you know, Trump always emphasized it himself. You know, he's a deal maker. that, that the rules of the game have changed now that he's in power, that anything can, is negotiable. Um, as for that, you know, I don't... It's, it's really hard to say, you know, how much Trump advisors have influence on him, how much they're able to hold him in check. And it's also just a question of the different contesting forces within his administration, some of which are also kind of, you know, that break from the status quo radically. So, I mean, you know, I, I do think what uh, William Stanton says is trying to reassure that the status quo, you know, still holds. And do you think the Thai administration is breathing a sigh of relief? Um, I think, you know, the, the Thai administration is, is, yeah, I mean, so long as, you know, they don't wake up and there's a fourth communique, I mean, I think they're breathing a sigh of relief because, you know, they can't predict what's happening in the Trump administration. Um, originally, you know, they thought they could gain something out of the, you know, renegotiation of the status quo under Trump. But I think at this point now they're just very cautious of what might happen. Alexander. Well, I, I think it's it's quite, if you look into the Taiwan, but also into Hong Kong, it's uh, the international community. Uh, and their stance on it, and uh, the United States is a leading force within that. I think as long as the status quo isn't, isn't touched, uh, China will have difficulties to explaining to the international community why it would be taking refuge to, to a stronger grip on Taiwan or to strict their measures or whatnot. But in this equation, also, as Brian said, the United States is also uh, uh, one part of, and you cannot foresee if they may uh, withdraw from the, from the status quo, which is their pr- protection of, of Taiwan and also technically still uh, on Hong Kong. So there is uh, exactly like a lot of um, um, yeah, unstability in, in, in the whole thing. 
So I feel like you know what we know is it's a known unknown. Like we know that you know what is the status quo will that hold? You know that that's that's we know that there's, there's that uh, possibility, but it's just incredibly hard to judge at this point. Wrong. I think you don't know exactly how much Xi Jinping wants to push forward in in what in what pace, for instance. I mean, the, the his speech was clear and unclear at the same time. So it's not that China would be the only uh, clear factor in in this equation, too. Right, we shall move on from the status quo and move to Vietnam and the annual APEC Leaders Summit in Da Nang, where People First Party Chairman James Sung has once again been appointed President Tsai Ing-wen's special envoy to the forum. And this year's APEC got off to a rather ominous start after Minister Without Portfolio John Dung, who heads the Cabinet Office of Trade Negotiations, didn't get a visa in time to travel with the delegation to the country. Now, the problem was ironed out quickly enough through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs which said that the problem was caused by Vietnam's administrative procedures. There we go. That's all they said about that. Anyway, the ministry has also said that um, meetings between James Sung and at least five APEC member states have been arranged on the sidelines of the summit. However, the ministry is refusing to reveal which leaders Taiwan's APEC representatives will meet with out of respect for those countries. What we do know, though, is due to Economics Minister Shen Rong Jin, he's been holding talks with Philippine officials, Indonesian officials and Australian officials. And he turned around yesterday and basically said, well, we had talks with the Philippines and we're hoping now for a swift completion of a renewal of the two countries' bilateral investment agreement. So, Brian, APEC this week, we've got talks with Philippines, Indonesia and Australia. Talk of possible meetings between James Sung and China's President Xi Jinping and sort of semi-confirmation that James Sung will hold talks with Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, James Song is size representative again this year, which is, you know, an unusual choice given that he's closer to the deeper blue end of the spectrum. Um, you know, I think that Tsai probably aims to have Song represent Taiwan at APEC, which is one of the few forums Taiwan is able to attend international, you know, forums, probably just as a sign of, you know, not intending to break with the status quo. Um, but I think that, you know, that in relation to the Trump C meeting, that's where the world's attention is turned towards right now. And so, you know, what kind of meeting would occur incidentally between James Song and Xi Jinping, which is, you know, was discussed last year, too. Um, I mean, that, that would be overshadowed by the Trump uh, C meeting. Um, what, about the me- the, what about the meeting with Shinzo Abe? Because surely that's, that's, one could argue that's more important directly to Taiwan's trade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. But I also think that, you know, uh, these kind of communications would occur outside of these kind of international forums in which, you know, the world's eyes are watching. Um, there have been, you know, previous speculation that, you know, Tsai met Abe um, during, you know, presidential uh, campaigning, um, you know, in, in Japan. Um, and, you know, so I think that that, that that wouldn't be a significant meeting. I mean, you know, these kind of connections have to occur, you know, at a higher level. And with Song, you know, it's kind of a question if she would have him meet Abe. Well, I, I guess it's also this, this kind of uh, um, of meetings and gatherings for Taiwan is uh, still at the, ta- uh, at the table. It's, it's also part of, of the status quo. And it's important to see that um, um, there is still uh, progress. There is still me- meetings happening and there is no intend by China to, uh, to you know, make Taiwan withdraw or making the pariah at, at, at this event in particular, because uh, 
from the international standpoint, where it was difficult for countries to engage with Taiwan uh, diplomatically, they were allowed uh, to do economically. And that's, um, that's basically like the backbone of, uh, of Taiwan standing in, in, in the world today. So, mm. I mean, the kind of unofficial meetings that occur on the side, I feel that's nothing particularly new, because, you know, like, um, that usually does occur at international forums. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you know, the side mission does want to reassure the world that, you know, Taiwan is still a part of, you know, the inter- international, you know, economic scene in that way. And of course it's in Vietnam where the of course which is covered by the government's new southbound policy, of course. Um that's right, although, you know, it's a Taiwanese company that is responsible for the largest ecological disaster in Vietnamese history in the, you know, past year. Um but yeah, I mean, you know, the the Thai administration definitely wishes to target Vietnam as a uh, you know, target to build stronger economic and political ties. And we'll move on from the APEC summit and discuss the cabinet, which spent the week addressing shortages of land, power and water that business leaders argue are discouraging investment in Taiwan. Premier William Lai had a very busy week talking up all these subjects, and he vowed to free up some 1,400 hectares of land for industrial use by 2022. He said that the government is seeking to build more emergency backup water supply systems as part of ongoing efforts to reduce water shortage concerns. And Lai also said that power supplies will be stable within two years as more natural gas, coal and renewable power sources are installed. So we've heard all this obviously before, but he's, he put it all in one week for us this week, Brian. Uh-huh. Yeah, it does seem like he compressed it all together. I mean, that seems to be one of the things that I think, uh, you know, cabinet-level officials always have to keep doing, just reassuring the public that there won't be disruptions to their everyday li- lives with, uh, you know, in terms of these basic supplies and, you know, these uh, you know, electricity and so forth. I mean, you know, the issue is that a lot of companies are concerned about um, operating factories in Taiwan if you do have these frequent power outages. So, And, you know, that, that raises questions of Taiwan's competitiveness in the, the international economy. And so, you know, I think that William Lai, of course, does have to do his best to reassure the public. But, you know, I think that, can he differ from Pastor Rhetoric? I'm not totally sure. Because, of course, he came out with these comments about what they're going to do, but there was nothing concrete. Mm-hmm. Exactly, which is, you know, just what always happens. Well, I mean, in my one of my first weeks, uh, there was, uh, in, in Taiwan, I came in August, there was like a, a blackout in, in, in large parts of, of the country. And if I'm not misinformed, the, uh, the government officials, if not even the minister, resigned uh, over this uh, power shortage. And I, I can assure you that this would not have happened in Germany, where I'm from, or in any other given European country, where you, in, 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 in such instances, like you have rather blurry lines of responsibility. So I think like uh, Taiwan in particular, which depends very much on its productivity and its reliability, it's uh, again some of it as Brian said maybe just rhetorically and not really outlined with a with a with a with bullet points and with a timeline and trajectory. But I think the, there is um, an emphasis on the importance of being reliable in that sense. And of course, William Lai also reiterated the government's plans to make Taiwan nuclear power free by 2025 and also reduce carbon emissions. Do you think this is at all possible? I guess the, uh, the, the, the talk about, I mean, it's also, you need the political will, if I, if I may say, and also the, the same, I mean, go on the streets of Taipei or Kaohsiung, where I live, it's like the air pollution is just like as a, as a matter of fact. So there is like, and, there's, as, and there seems to be no one who said, oh, we should keep it that way. So uh, I, I think the government's um, efficiency is, uh, is, is to be proven by the measures they can apply in a given time to problems like that. Right, of course, Brian, we've got water Mm. problems. We had water woes. We didn't have water woes last year, but of course, a couple of years ago, we had big water woes when water restrictions were in place. And obviously, 
companies, international companies, in fact, have voiced their concern about the island's water supplies. Do you think the government's going to move forward with this? It came out with a lofty statement, did William lie this week, about how it's all going to be okay water-wise. Um, yeah, I mean, just in general with all this kind of stuff, I don't see kind of a you know plan being come up with. It doesn't seem actually that much on the, you know, in terms of like the reform initiatives that the Thai administration have, this is not actually one of them that, you know, they talk about facing this issue, but, you know, they don't have some kind of grand overarching plan. Um, I mean, you know, as usual with talk of nuclear energy and, you know, um, environment being environmentally friendly or even just maintaining these basic supplies, you know, it's where the contract steps taken to get there and what is the timeline. I think that, you know, if you do actually say a timeline, then people might hold your feet to the fire to that. So that's what they're trying to avoid. Anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and with the Taiwan LGBT Pride Parade taking place at the end of last month, the status of the same-sex marriage bills, many of them, is again fresh in people's minds. And where are the bills? Well, the Cabinet has said that it hopes to lawmakers could vote on the issues next year. But some other officials are being rather less optimistic here, saying that finalisation of any same-sex marriage laws may still be a couple of years away. And I spoke with KMT lawmaker at large, Shoe about the situation. So, what's the actual status of the various bills put forward to promote and legalize same sex marriage at the moment? After the constitutional court ruling in May this year, uh, it, it says that we have two years to legalize the, uh, uh, the same sex marriage and then also for legislative branch to make necessary amendments. Uh, the fact is, uh, legislative UN is ready to vote, but it is the uh, administrative or executive. Yuan that is blocking the process. In other words, they are stalling because they are afraid of risking um, the elections next year. So uh, the way I see it is uh, they would wait till 2019 or the end of 2018 to actually uh, to make a decision. So right now the bill is sort of frozen. That's the status. Um, so, yeah, and also in my joint session with uh, Premier William Lai, he had promised that he would strive to still uh, put forth the uh, executive draft of the uh, uh, same-sex marriage bill. Right. There was talk earlier this year that the lawmakers could actually go vote on the bill as early as next year, but you think this is impossible now because of the elections? Uh, I think I think technically we can and we should. However, politically, uh, the ruling party, the DPP, would not risk uh, elections because you know next year it would all be um, campaigning or candidates would not you know dare to touch this issue uh, because they know in their constituency or in their district this is always a very you know, a sensitive and very thorny issue. Do you think that's a, a clever gambit by the government or a rather annoying thing they're doing there, playing politics? Yeah, it is very cowardly and it's very timid, I think, for the ruling party to take such an approach. Because it was President Tsai's uh, campaign promise to support same-sex marriage. And most of young people uh, vote for her because of this policy. But she's been indecisive and she's been, you know, um, coward in, in, you know, making a decision. And if you look at other countries, 
you know, it, it is oftentimes with the leader's will that push through, you know, such a important uh, decision, and then society will learn to adapt it afterwards. But if we just keep painting in the midair and not um, making any uh, concrete steps forward, I think the society will be further divided. Why do you think it's such a dividing issue in Taiwan? I think it has to do uh, with uh, generational uh, differences. And also, Taiwan is still somewhat conservative. Maybe not in Taipei, but southern or you know, townships in, in southern Taiwan, I think most of the, the people are very conservative. And also, religious groups play an important factor in this deciding um, uh, such an issue. And also Taiwan's politics is also heavily uh, involved the religious uh, uh, groups as well. Right. Obviously, you're a backer of the bill because it's one of your bills, in fact, is being debated. But, I mean, exactly. have, have you spoken to these religious groups and asked them exactly why they oppose it? Uh, I, I did and I tried, but it seems that it is embedded deeply in their value system uh, because, you know, Christian groups, you know, it is in, in their, in their um, Bible or, or also they said that is they oppose um, same-sex marriage. And not so much in the Buddhist, Buddhist groups, it's mostly with, uh, with uh, Christian groups. But uh, I've, I've also visited churches that support same-sex marriage and I've also actually presided over uh, meetings with gay couples in in a church, so I don't think it's a uh, issue that is agreed upon in all church community. Yeah, right. Well, obviously, you mentioned earlier that it's young people are backing the bill and el- older people, should we say, opposing the bill. Do you think maybe yeah. in, in about two or three years, when the voting demographics maybe maybe change slightly, such issues could go away? It is the trend that the in, in younger population that people recognize same-sex uh, marriage or at least LGBT to be uh, normal uh, among their their peers in the community. And I also believe that when we uh, set up a law, we should think about the future rather than get stuck in the past. Um, so in the, in the next, you know, three to five years, I believe. Alexander, you heard Jason there. What do you have to say? Well, I, I'm a German citizen, and Germany, frankly, as one of the last European uh, uh, liberal democracies, has finally come uh, come about with the same uh, sex marriage bill, if you will. It, it, it went into effect on October 1st, and uh, Germany was surpassed by even more Catholic nations like France and Spain and uh, Ireland. So, um, and uh, for that, I'm quite familiar with, uh, to, to put things on a long bench, as to say in German, to not put it into effect, to not, uh, to not outrage the conservatives or the Christian right. Um, in the end, it's just like you have to, ta- to take a stance. You really have to, 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 to aim for it, because otherwise you will never, you will never see, be seeing that into effect. Germany took like uh, 20 years to, to finally get to the point. 
Right, and Brian, of course, Jason was a bit rather angry that the government's politicising the matter for, mm. the, for, the, for the sake of the elections. Mm. I mean, it's kind of interesting because, you know, the ruling was by the Council of Grand Justices. So in theory, that takes the heat off of legislators to, you know, like, they can just claim to their constituents who may be against gay marriage that, you know, oh, well, this is how the Council of Grand Justices ruled. There's nothing we can do about it. But they still don't want to move, which is the kind of surprising thing. And so, you know, that the DPP, I think, uh, just, you know, there's a large question part of the DPP that is just ideologically, religiously opposed to gay marriage. On the other hand, you know, the Thai administration did make it a campaign promise to legalize gay marriage, but Thai seems to be afraid of provoking tensions within her own party. Um, actually, if you notice the statements by Thai and William Lai on this, they stick to kind of legalese and say that, you know, we respect the due processes of law. Um, they emphasize, you know, the ruling and that this is, you know, now a judicial precedent. Um, you know, it's not like a, 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 they haven't seized upon the rhetoric of hope and change that they did during election campaigning. And I think that's quite striking. So, I mean, you know, the executive brand that's underneath, you know, Ty, um, that's William Lai, um, um, I guess they don't, maybe don't want to take action on this either. Um, on the other hand, you know, if they do take action on this, that, that could be a way to break the current impasse within the legislature. And of course, Jason also mentioned young people. So in, in three or four years, maybe, or three or five years, he believes that because more young people I, will... I, adep- I, I, on, a, on, a, on a, a very general note as well, it's like, if this is a liberal democracy, it's okay if you have your religion, but, you you know, it's not what you make uh, laws with. And, and, and to be a just society is not defined by any holy scripture. And the, I mean, for me as a European, it's quite astonishing this country has a very small um, Christian population, however, has like in the United States, like maybe even imported like this uh, evangelical, very right wing, very like uh, literal interpretation of the Bible sort of groups that really uh, spice up, if you will, uh, this whole process. And I think if, if I were a government here, I would not. I would not allow this to make this like uh, the measure of my predicament and of my policy making. Right. But obviously, like Jason said, certain religions do have a bit of a sway in the local political scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, with regards to, you know, that there are more and more young people participating in politics. The real question I have is that, you know, in a few years time, will they hold power? Um, I think that, you know, a lot of the older heavyweights that may be more conservative, they'll still be in power then. Um, for example, you know, uh, NPP chair Huang Guochang is currently facing a, a recall vote regarding his support of same-sex marriage. And so, you know, that's interesting because he's from Siju and, you know, his electoral district is usually more pan-blue leaning, so it's a little more conservative. And so he was put into power with the support of a lot of young people because he is a you know post Sunfire movement candidate. And so that you know how that how that recall vote plays out will be very interesting because you know it's almost the young people versus kind of older voters, um, you know support for this issue versus opposition for this issue. And so you know that that is almost like a, a referendum I think even on the state of how you know young people relate to older people who may be more conservative in politics today. So right, I mean if that's you have this bigger issue. I would also, however, want to to just make it a generational. I mean, I know it is, as a matter of fact, but a, a generational issue. There's these liber, liberalizations in society that come uh, in, in, in hand with such things like as gay or same-sex marriage. Which in Germany, the polls in the end show that uh, the vast majority of the elderly, if you will, uh, even the, the voters for the conservative party. Uh, were in favor of same-sex marriage and earlier to that also to to other um, um, equalization uh, measures in, in in lawmaking so I think it's it's also crucial to to try to include uh, uh, all generations in, in 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 such an effort and basically what have what has in Germany because we also have like religious right but that's big and also like we have people who maybe like 
opposed for cultural or upbringing reasons. It's just like, listen, the thing is, like, you do not have to conduct a gay marriage yourself. It's just, like, about, like, just a constant... Um, you strive to make people aware of uh, there's also other groups in society that you may not have an emphasis on. And I think this is um, the, the hardship that you have to undergo in a liberal democracy. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, so far as the Taiwanese political spectrum is between independence and unification, sometimes not really left and right. You know, it is independence that, you know, you talk to some of these older pro-independence advocates and they're, you know, in favor of gay marriage. But you talk to a lot of these kind of very fervent unification types and they're brutally opposed to gay marriage. And that's one of the interesting things, I mean, that does t- play into, you know, the broader trends of, uh, you know, Taiwanese democracy and how identity trends and, you know, political trends have played out. Right. Now, moving on to some more controversial news, and this is controversial constitutional news. Again, really, I guess they're the same, really, aren't they? Same-sex marriage. And, of course, the burning of the ROC flag. And this has to do with the Taiwan High Court filing a request for a ruling by the Council of Grand Justices on laws related to the desecration of the island's flag. Now, the court ruled that taking legal action against any group or individual who deliberately desecrates the flag could infringe on freedom of speech and even freedom of thought. Now, the court's request for a constitutional interpretation of the law is related to a case involving five independence activists whose conviction for cutting up a dozen of the flags in 2015 was overturned on appeal by the new Taipei District Court. Prosecutors then appealed that ruling, and the High Court stepped in, suspended the appeal's trial to allow for a constitutional interpretation. So, Alexander, the burning of the ROC flag, the burning of any flag, do you think this should be is freedom of speech or it should be clamped down on? Well, I, I have been living the last three years before I came here in the United States, and I uh, hope to return uh, at some point as well. And you have uh, the debate there about the kneeling during the anthem is, is played. You have, I mean, you have the controversy about the Confederacy flag. Uh, and I totally understand that these uh, kind of national symbols, uh, symbols draw a lot of, like, um, I carry a lot of weight and also emotionally. However, having said that, it's also in the United States where you have a high appreciation of the freedom of speech and, and the variety of forms it may come in. Uh, again, back to Germany, you have a, we have a very old blasphemy paragraph, which has hardly ever been used. But, you know, it's sometimes people I dig it out and say in 1860-something there was this paragraph about you're not allowed to... To, to conduct blasphemy in public, uh, which is utterly stunning in in liberal democracy. So, in my in my personal uh, view, it's like this is all part of a of exercising uh, a freedom of speech. You should, however, um, uh, put that also into perspective what you want what, what you want to achieve, because it depends on what you want to achieve. People may not may not listen to your to what you have to say if the symbol you you. Um, you use may be too strong to then, you know, get the impact that you wish to have. Um, yeah, I mean, the ROC flag has a lot of, uh, you know, controversial resonances because, you know, it does contain the KMT party symbol as, you know, the, the white sun on the flag. And, you know, for many, it is a symbol of the white terror. So that's, you know, why infants advocates and, you know, have their kind of own Taiwan flag. And, you know, that's why burning the ROC flag is, is a practice, um, you know, at a lot of, you know, pro-defense rallies and so forth. Um, well, not often, but, you know, for big events such as the two, commemoration of 228 and etc. Um, so that raises a lot of questions of freedom of speech because, you know, it's, it is ostensibly a country in which the government does not slant towards one political party or another, but you literally have a reminder of the former party state as part of the flag. And so, you know, it's it opens a, a large can of worms there, I think. Um, 
And you know, it's 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 also ironic because sometimes at sporting events which take place in Taiwan, in which Taiwan's on the international stage, such as you know the Summer University, you can actually have the ROC flag there because you know it's not Taiwan or even the Republic of China; it's Chinese Taipei that's uh, you know participating. So you have to have your own Chinese Taipei flag that is not used to represent Taiwan in any form anywhere, except at sporting events. Right. I mean, if you had to make a, if you had to make a ruling yourself here, Brian, do you think the do you think basically the, the constitutional court is going to basically come out and say yes? It's freedom of speech to desecrate the flag. I think so, because I think that, you know, uh, the Thai administration is facing a lot of heat on this issue. Um, I think that, you know, it would provoke a lot of outrage if they actually did try to clamp down on this. It's also, yeah, it's also like the, even the, the language in place is rather questionable. Because desecrating would also emphasize on something sacred within the nation. And again, as a European, where we have been fighting many wars uh, over nation and nationalism, I, I'm not sure if you should overemphasize in consequence uh, the nation, regardless which one, right, uh, to such a sacred status that like um, insulting or whatever you want to call it, like uh, questioning a nation's symbols is, uh, is almost an act of blasphemy. You shouldn't go that far. Right. And before we go, a survey has found that teenagers here in Taiwan are willing to engage in political and social issues through social media, but apparently very few of them actually join civic or political organisations. Apparently the study involved 94,000 students from 24 countries, with Taiwan, South Korea and Hong Kong being the only Asian ones included. Now, Taiwanese students scored 581 points on average, which put them second behind Danish students, who averaged 586 points. Now, the issues in the survey related to support for ethnic equality, where Taiwanese students apparently had the best performance. However, the students didn't trust the island's judiciary and had least confidence in the mass media. So, all these Taiwanese teenagers that once would have joined the Sunflower Movement, Brian, are apparently now sitting at home playing with their computers. You know, that's the funny thing, because I think that uh, one of the very interesting things about Taiwan is that political mobilization during the Sunflower Movement, or after, you know, I mean, for example, before the Sun Farmer, this was lambasted as a strawberry generation that just sat in front of their computers all day and posted on PTT. And then we have the Sun Farmer, it's something like, oh, well, you know, social media can lead to social change. People can mobilize. And now we're kind of back in a phase in which, you know, people are just sitting in front of their keyboards again. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, political participation by young people was something that attracted a lot of attention after the Sunfire Movement. Um, some people have entered the DPP or joined, you know, third force parties, but that's still a minority. Um, the majority have, you know, gone back to doing what they were doing before. Because I think that is just the nature of political participation. Not everybody is going to become an organizer or join an organization. But it also points to the lack of, you know, uh, venues for young people to participate in politics through organizations or civic groups or, you know, through government-sponsored initiatives. Um, I mean, maybe that sense of being left out of politics has returned, the, which, you know, once led to the Sunfire Movement, but maybe it's gone back to that. Yeah, if you if you look into recent events in the West Denver, the election of Donald Trump and the, the Brexit referendum in in uh, the, uh, the United Kingdom, it, it turned out that the so-called millennials uh, did not participate uh, um which uh, that much as they should have, or as we are discussing about these kind of activities. I mean, if only the millennials had, had voted, uh, uh, and Brexit would never have happened, and Hillary Clinton would be president. So in England, for instance, they have after the uh, the referendum, then there have been spark movements by, by younger people and, and going to the streets. Uh, well, one would argue that's, that's too late. So I think particular political participation at a given time is something that every generation has to learn for, it, for itself. And uh, uh, the same goes for uh, a youngster today in Taiwan.
What do you think could happen, Brian, for the more young people to take to the streets again like they did in the Sunflower Movement? Yeah, it's a really good question to me because, you know, one year after the Sunflower Movement, we had the uh, occupation of the Ministry of Education by high school students. But after that, you didn't really see another wave of uh, young people, you know, participating in politics. And it's actually a kind of a question what uh, those high schools are up to now. Not all of them have continued to be involved in the way uh, post-Sunflower Movement activists, who are usually college students at that time, have, you know, continued to be active in politics. So I actually don't know what would lead to, you know, more participation. Um, it might actually have to depend on some kind of event providing a stimulus for action, such as, you know, the passing of textbooks, which are controversial, or the passing of a bill that people oppose. Um, it's, it's a question, you know, what that issue that would, you know, drive young people to action would be at this point. Well, I uh, still, uh, being a guest and an observer uh, in this country, I, I get told, like, by several people I talk to that they have the impression that uh, a, a, a vast group of, of of people in society, including young people, which is really not being so interested even in in what political system they live and and what what governance they may have, and I think this this sort of apathy is actually uh, a very bad thing. I mean, uh, democracy comes at a price, and it's not a given. And you can see, like now, in the respark of nationalism and populism all across the world, that uh, democracy is something you need to fight for every day. If you're in, uh, fighting is not just like big jihad; it's also just like participating in 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 political activity and make up your mind and being an informed citizen. Right, and that's where we'll leave Taiwan this week. This week, and I've been joined in the studio today by New Bloom's Brian Hugh. Good night. And on the telephone by Alexander Gorlak. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.